following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Morning. For those who haven't been here uh, during June, my name is Matthew Nikoloff. I am the priest over at the Southwedge Mission, which is one of our, we're all, we're all friends in this neighborhood here. Uh, and I'm really honored to have been able to spend the last month um, filling in for Scott while he's on sabbatical. Um, we're wrapping up um, a series this month that we called the um, Decorating Time, the Psalms of Artisan. And before we get into our final kind of movement of this um, series, I wanted to just recap where we had been for the last couple of weeks. Um, remember back in week one, back at the beginning of June, we talked about orientation, and we talked about how um, music, not just, not just genres of music, but the actual like, stuff of music, the wavelengths, the frequencies, the vibrations, are running throughout not only the entire universe in this kind of cosmic background radiation, but also vibrate and resonate through our very cells and our very beings. And we talked about how that cosmic vibration moving through us could be seen as the echoes of the Spirit's act of creation, that same Spirit that Paul says in the book of Romans is groaning with sighs too deep from words within our hearts, um, bursting forth into sounds that are not necessarily spoken words, but are kind of music in themselves. And that the substance of that song is, let there be light, and it is good. And so the next week we invited, um, it was actually the Feast of Pentecost, and I I realized we didn't really celebrate that much, but it was kind of fitting that on the Feast of Pentecost, we had a number of different voices um, up here, some songwriters sharing the ways in which they listened to that voice welling up from within them and bringing forth songs and prayers and laments and all sorts of other interesting musical things. And the point of that week, right, was to help us to start to, um, by listening to the process of other people, particularly musicians and their process of songwriting, discover how we also can start listening deeply to what's going on inside of us, right? Um, so that songwriting, right, most of us are not musicians or songwriters, but um, songwriting as one um, lens to look at the ways in which we discern and listen to the music of the spirit that is in us. Um, in week three, we talked about disorientation. We listened to some different... Um, some different music and some different genres, and it was mainly about um, the disorientation of being confronted by the prophetic rage of groups that have been excluded. Voices that maybe as people of privilege, we would rather have be silent so that we can speak. But being reminded by these voices, especially if we're in a place of privilege, that this story does not belong to us, that we did not create ourselves, um, that this music, we don't own it, Um, that the music of the story of God does not belong to any one group of people, but it is God's story that is including us into it. And so we we, we journey through some hip-hop and through some different um, kind of um, soul music and some uh, R&B until we got to the point of reorientation, which is also this um, reorienting joy, which says, when we discover that the story is so much bigger than us and so much bigger than our prejudices or so much bigger than our need to speak, we can start to hear in the spirit empowering voices that have been excluded. And those voices not only show us something new, but they also um, show us how we can actually be integrated into a bigger story, into God's story, the story of God um, gathering God's children into one. So in a way, we could look at the three movements of the song of God, from orientation to disorientation to reorientation, as um, starting off with, it is good, let there be light, moving to let's make this family bigger, right? When, uh, in, the, in the book of Genesis, when they're in the garden, God says, be fruitful and multiply, and gender and sexuality and all that stuff aside, the point of the story is this trajectory of increase. It's good. 
The light that I made is good. The people I made are good. The things I made are good. Let's make sure more and more people can enjoy the blessing of knowing their original belovedness and goodness. That is the song that God is singing throughout the history of God with God's people. It is the story that God is calling us as the church to dive deep into our own um, songs and to bring forth in our lives, in our music, and in our words. So that's how we're being called to reorient ourselves um, away from self-centered, self-seeking, building up barriers and um, ways of controlling protest so that it doesn't affect us, and letting those disorienting voices affect us so that we open up new spaces and can discover the spirit doing something new, not only in us, but in the world around us. That's kind of the overall flow of where we've been going. And today I want to just share three vignettes of freedom, of that reorienting freedom that God is trying to stir up in us. One of them is very musical because it is a music series, but I want to keep that one brief because the other two are really pertinent, I think, especially this week in the life of this church. So the first vignette about freedom, as Paul talked about in Galatians, is from jazz saxophonist John Coltrane. How many of you have heard John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, or at least heard parts of it? You probably have, even if you aren't conscious of it, because it's one of the most um, popular and well, um, widely distributed jazz albums of all time. John Coltrane was a heroin addict from 1948 until 1957. And despite that, and maybe even because of it at some points, wrote some of the most, was already regarded as one of the most um, innovative and powerful voices in jazz. He played with Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, redefined kind of what, um, what bebop and uh, jazz was all about. And then in 1957, John Coltrane had a religious experience which enabled him to kick heroin and his, and his alcoholism and to start to pursue music from a new angle. Anyone here who struggled with addiction, even if it's something to like shopping or to, you know, just um, ways of thinking, knows how hard an addiction is to break. So breaking a heroin addiction and alcoholism at the same time and basically going clean for the rest of his life is a pretty big reorientation in his life, right? It disrupted um, who he thought he was, and it could have disrupted his music. In fact, one of the reasons the Miles Davis quintet of that era, which is regarded as one of the most um, amazing jazz quintets of all time, it produced albums like Kind of Blue, which you've also probably heard because it's kind of like everywhere, um, broke up because John Coltrane was no longer using drugs. Um, and John Coltrane, several years later, recorded an album called A Love Supreme. And he said this about the, um, the album. He said... I humbly asked to be given the means to make others happy through music. And so John Coltrane wrote this album in four movements, which was partly an improvisation, improvisational meditation on this little melody, which you're going to hear at the beginning of this little snippet. I'm going to play you a snippet from the fourth movement, which he entitled Psalm. And you'll hear a little bit of a reiteration of the theme with this little flutter of notes at the beginning. We're just going to listen to a minute or two of it. And I invite you to just close your eyes and enjoy it, because there's no text on the, on the screen or anything.
So we're just going to listen to a little snippet of that, but you can hear there's not really a beat, right? There's just lots of this kind of chaotic stuff happening around it. John Coltrane was an innovator of what's called free jazz. Um, he was very experimental later in his life and uh, continued to be really interested and um, passionate about the connections of spirituality and music, as well as cosmology. So he would meditate on like astronomy and astrophysics and science and mathematics. He developed all these really crazy and amazing systems of integrating like musical um, harmonies and balances into um, his understanding of like cosmic unity. And it was really amazing. People still use John Coltrane's music as a window into studying physics and, um, and higher level, you know, kind of quantum stuff today. So um, he was somebody who, through this new perspective, didn't just play music, but was really trying to play this cosmic harmony through his horn and to share that with others, to really become a vessel and a conduit for that music, um, while also maintaining the freedom, not just to stick it into an equation, but to really have freedom to explore the vastness of that. So one of the things that I just learned about this week, even though I've been listening to this album for probably 25 years, is that that last, um, and some of you may know this too, that last song, the psalm, is actually John Coltrane had a sheet of music, a sheet of poetry in front of him. It was a poem that he wrote about God. And he was playing the poem through his saxophone. He was interpreting what he heard in the universe and in the cosmos and trying to put it into that sigh that is too deep for words through his instrument. So I'm going to have, um, we're going to play the same song again, but this time with his handwritten words um, written there. And you can just see how um, that music, that sound arose from um, all these things and expresses itself in something kind of new. There's some notes there. I think we have the uh, first track still playing over that one. Okay, that was interesting. See, technology, we have cacophony there that makes even something newer and more chaotic. Um, what I'll do is I'll throw this up on the, on the um, artisan page and you, there'll be a link to it in the podcast and you can see it because it actually follows the words and you can see how his melody and the way he shapes his lines and the way he shapes his phrasing um, actually expresses those ideas. It, it kind of sounds like a human voice but it kind of doesn't. And to me that's such, a, um, that's such a great encapsulation of everything we've been trying to do. Even the disorienting um, exercise last week, right, where we made you guys kind of enter into that disorienting space of writing um, stuff down from in your hearts, right? Stuff that you were kind of inspired to write from the prompts and stuff that was inspired from your life and just simple words and phrases, trying to get them out. And thankfully, not everyone here has to try to like play it through a saxophone or a guitar. You know, like, we're going to try to create those ourselves, right? 
um, uh, we'll, we'll have the musicians in the, in the community help with that and to give voice the way that John Coltrane did. But I just find that so fascinating, though. And he looked into that cosmic mystery. These are kind of the words and the, uh, and, the, and the feelings and the things that John Coltrane found. Just like when we look into our hearts, we find not just um, words of accusation or words of disorientation, but we hear a voice calling us the beloved, a voice calling out with love, a voice that says you can trust deep within you deep within the grain of the universe, um, written into the very code of everything it is, are these words, let there be light, you are good, let's make more, right? And that's what John Coltrane did. One of his musicians in the session, if we could get that quote up, McCoy Tyner had this to say about um, getting to make this album with John Coltrane. Um, He said, John had a very wonderful way of being flexible with the music, flexing it, stretching it. You know, we reflected that kind of thing. He gave us the freedom to do that. We thought of something, oh, then we'll play it, you know? And he said, yeah, I have a feeling, you know? And all that freedom just came together when we did that record. So even though John Coltrane had this vision of what the cosmos could look like, and he probably meditated on it more than any of us could and had all these, like, revelations, he didn't tell the people around them, do it this way. It has to look like I see it. His vision was big enough, right, to incorporate all sorts of other crazy stuff. And in the end, everybody was more than um, themselves and the sum of their parts together, creating this piece of music, which is 33 minutes long and continues to move and to speak and to reveal things to all of us who listen to it many years past. That gift of freedom in the music doesn't just say, think, feel, believe, know in the same way, but it says, enter into this mystery and then see what it brings out of you and what it brings into the world. So that's vignette one. John Coltrane's um, little um, excursion into a love supreme is kind of a metaphor, as an analogy, as a window into seeing what it's like, that another process of God's reorienting love, working through music, and to reshape the world. Vignette number two comes from someone we might not like as much as John Coltrane um, sometimes, but it's from St. Paul, writing um, his letter to the Galatians. In that letter to the Galatians, from the passage we heard, that, that initial cry, it was for freedom Christ set you free. Therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Contrary to um, what we might think of St. Paul, um, Paul's main purpose in proclaiming the gospel was liberation. He wanted to bring freedom to people. Freedom from the law as a way to make barriers between persons and barriers between ourselves and God and freedom to live into that one commandment that he talked about, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be free in the love of Christ so that we might embrace anyone anywhere with the gospel and help them to hear the good news that God's family is always getting bigger and there's always more room than we thought there was. Now I get it. Like even this passage we read today from Galatians, it talked about the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. And it's very easy and many people have used that as a way to do dualistic kind of stuff, right? Like bodies are bad, spirits are good. That's not what Paul is after. For Paul, the flesh is not our body, but it is the ways in which we seek ourselves. And we use our um, self and our body to commodify and to violate and to do violence unto others. The flesh is all the ways that we take good things. And instead of turning them outwards so they can be free and become more, we turn them inwards and try to make them all about us. We try to possess them rather than sharing them. We try to control them rather than allowing them to flourish. 
That's what the flesh is. We should really use his Greek word for it, which is the sarks, which sounds much more like alien and kind of crazy. Because the sarks, really, like that, that's something we can also say, oh yeah, sarks is definitely bad, right? We don't want to say, <laughs> bodies are good. Bodies make music. Bodies love. Bodies embrace. Bodies um, eat communion, right? Bodies are, are good things. God made them and said they're good. The sarks is this kind of like cosmic, um, it's kind of like global warming, all the sum of all our little acts of dehumanization, which add up into this big complex in which um, people's bodies are commodified and people's sexualities are abused and people's race is used as a way to dehumanize them, right? That's what the sarks is. And we can all, I think, firmly stand with Paul against those things, right? Those exploitative ways in which we take goodness. And instead of saying, let there be light, we say, let there be me. So the whole point, of, I want to I do a quick jaunt through what's going on in Paul's letter to the Galatians, how he gets to this point of calling for freedom. Because in some ways, Paul's story is not unlike John Coltrane's story, and it's not unlike many of our stories. See, the story behind the letter to the Galatians, no matter how much theology you've heard about it, or, you know, Romans Road type stuff of how this is how justification works, and this is how blah, 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 right? It's actually a story. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a story in which Paul basically, like a, like a MC Paul we'll call him, okay? like a kind of a, a, an MC or a, a hip-hop artist, remixes the story of Israel. He doesn't change it, he doesn't throw it out, but he remixes it. And he shapes it in a new way so as to proclaim the same truth of the universe, but in a way that his listeners can hear. So, as you might know, in the, in the city of Galatia, one of the problems, right, one, the orientation that people had, right, was that Jesus was Jewish, Jewish people were Christians, and so if you wanted to be a Christian, obviously you should be Jewish as well, right, which meant, uh, especially if you were a male, you had to be circumcised, right? Uh, that's a really easy way to welcome people into the church, right? Just like, <laughs> great marketing strategy there, right? But, you know, in, in, in their defense, that was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel back in the day, right, to Abraham. Um, the first kind of the first uh, father of Judaism, uh, God said, Let him, circumcision is this sign of this covenant, this love relationship that we have between God and this people Israel. And it's through this people Israel, remember that he told um, Abraham, that the nations, um, that God's people would increase, as I spit, into the nations, and that, um, and that through that increase, more people would know of the original blessing of God for God's world, right? The whole point of creating this family for God, of meeting Abraham, who was a refugee and a migrant uh, wandering through the wilderness, was to say, I want to work through particular people. I'm not an abstract kind of God, all right? I need particular people. I need to show what this looks like in the flesh, in our bodies. I want the world to know my love. The world is kind of stuck in this Sarksy place, right, where we're all um, exploiting each other and we're only focused on ourselves. And so, Abraham, I'm going to raise up this family. And through this family, the original song of creation will continue. Uh, Let there be light. It is good. Let there be more, right? That is the mission that God gave to Abraham and Abraham's people. And God even showed that mission through Abraham's people by uh, often working through people who the world thought were um, unworthy, through people who are, say, unable to have children, like Abraham's wife, Sarah, or through people who are considered dirty because they were sex workers, like Rahab. Or people who were considered outsiders like Ruth because they were migrants. Or people who people thought were marginalized and unimportant like Mary. And so God's way of telling this story in the world was by continually including more and more of the wrong kinds of people into this story. And so when Jesus came, the Jews of the time did not see him as replacing Judaism but fulfilling this story. Here's the next chapter. God is now showing in Jesus that not even sin, not even death, not even the state, not even imperial decree, not even concentration camps on the borders 
can separate us from God's love because God's justice triumphs over oppression, violence, and dehumanization. When Christ is resurrected as the Jewish Christ, it is seen as the vindication of God's justice in the world, that indeed Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. For the Jewish people, this was exciting because they'd been promised a Messiah and a king for a very long time, right? And they were expecting it, especially as people living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So, of course, now, Jesus is gone. Here comes Paul, right? And as you'll recall about Paul, he didn't start out as like a Jesus freak. He started out as the one killing the Jesus freaks because as a good Jew, he thought that they were being idolatrous. And Paul, even in the letter to the Galatians, outlines this story, how he was like the super Jew. He knew the law better than anybody. He was from the right tribe. He kept all the commandments, and he even got rid of bad people, right? He did everything that he thought was the right thing to do. And then God kind of knocked him off his horse and said, yeah, you ain't got that so right. Let me show you the real way, which is not through persecution or division or through violence or through bigotry, but it's through seeing Jesus and God in a new and bigger way, even though it meant going blind for a little bit for Paul and having to have his whole life reoriented. So here he is in Galatia, in this city where there are a lot of Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people who are also starting to say, yeah, we're, we're part of the family too, right? That's the message. God's family is getting bigger and bigger, and that's the whole point, right? The, the whole point of Israel and the whole point of the creation story is to include more and more people. And then Peter shows up. Jesus' is number one disciple, the guy who should get inclusion more than anybody, right? Because he kind of did the whole denial thing, and he you know, got rebuked as being called Satan by Jesus because he denied Jesus needing to get crucified. Like, Peter makes a lot of mistakes. You'd think if anybody got the need for grace and inclusion, it would be Peter, But even though Peter has agreed that, yeah, it's great that we have all these new non-Jewish people coming into the family, when he gets to Galatia, or wherever town they're in in Galatia, because it's a region, he decides to just hang out with the Jewish folks, the Jewish Christians, and not with the non-Jewish Christians. And so Paul is ticked, and Paul decides to write this letter calling out Peter in front of the whole church and saying, you are getting it wrong. That way of telling the story, that orientation, needs to be disrupted. Because when God started this family, he didn't say this is only for certain kinds of people with a circumcision and with certain adherence to the law who are holy enough or who are good enough or who fit the standards of society. Christ has opened the door for all humanity. Christ isn't doing anything new because God has always been about let there be light, it is good, let there be more. It's us who have forgotten it. That's why the agency of the Sarks, this division, this divisive thing has come in and is keeping some people out and allowing other people in based on circumcision, based on this really kind of questionable and painful and really hard to, uh, hard to buy into act, which is in itself meant to be an expression of God's inclusive covenant. So you're taking something that was a symbol of inclusivity and you're making it as a means to exclude people. And so Paul remixes that story of Abraham and talks about how it wasn't Abraham's actions, but the fact that Abraham trusted God, that Abraham heard God calling his name and said, yes, let there be light, this is good, I want some more. And Abraham followed Jesus, or followed God and Jesus. And Paul is saying, if there's other people who are hearing that gospel, then why are we excluding them? Why are we taking yet another thing and keeping them on the outside? It's not that a theoretical question as to whether Gentiles can be Christians. We see them right in front of us. Gentiles are Christians and they're not circumcised. So maybe what needs a reorientation is not them, 
but our understanding of the story. Maybe we need to be reminded and reconfigured and remixed so we see the bigger picture of the story that's not distorted by our nationalism, by our pain, by our fear of being excluded, by the ways we take the oppression that was done to us and now are visiting it on others. And so Paul ends by talking about freedom and saying at the end of the day, all that stuff in the law is great, but what really matters is love. And it's not just this hippie way of getting rid of all the Old Testament passages that we don't like, all right? That's not what Paul's trying to do. What he is trying to say is like, look, at, at the end of the day, all this stuff is pointing in a certain direction. There's a trajectory. It's trying to express something into the world, and it's not, here's some rules to follow. It's trying to express the gospel, the truth that is singing in the souls of the people. It is good, let there be light, and let there be more. That same song that God has been desperately trying to get us to hear, not only in our hearts, but in creation and now through the Jewish people, Paul is trying to get his own people to hear again. That's the remix. And so it is for freedom Christ has set us free, not for slavery, not for more rules, not for another system of exclusion and oppression, but one that continually asks of itself, wow, there's something new happening. How do we expand to include that? How do we allow our experience to be broadened? What is the gift that God is giving to us in these Gentile Christians? What is the gift that God is bringing into our midst with these new people so that just like when Rahab was used to um, help the Israelites or when Ruth was brought into the fold or when Mary, an unwed pregnant woman, gave birth to Jesus, the world can be different. What new um, things is God trying to get us to see so that we can continue to say, let there be light, it's good, and let there be more. So that's the story behind Galatians. When Paul talks about freedom and not devouring one another, and even that list of fruits of the Spirit, which, by the way, are way more important than the list of the bad things, right? Um, He's trying to show us a way of life, right? Patience and kindness, understanding. When we start to embrace the bigger picture, it makes us all bigger too. When we can love with God's love, we can love with a love that is much bigger than the love that we were given. And that's a good thing for everybody. And so Paul is willing to call out Peter, but he does so not just by ripping on Peter, but by pointing to a bigger gospel and a bigger story, remixing what people thought they knew and disrupting it so that they can be reoriented towards this new reality and whose new commandment is freedom in love, not fear of punishment. And at the end of the day, the church ratified Paul. In Acts 15, the council of the churches agreed Paul was right and Peter was wrong. They did it much more diplomatically so people could save face. But that is the story again and again and again. When people say inclusivity, that's not some biblical thing. That's just some liberal blah, blah, blah. They're wrong. It's the story of Genesis. It's the story of the prophets. It's the story of the New Testament. It's the story of Galatians. It is the story of Paul, who arguably is one of the least inclusive people in the way he speaks, and yet had the good heart to try to do it the best he could, because he knew what it was like to be excluded and to be re-included. So that's vignette number two, John Coltrane, St. Paul. And the third vignette is us in this moment as a church, as we continue to face um, the difficult and heartbreaking challenges that we face in this world that is ever-changing around us, as we discover the presence of God in people that we were told couldn't have the presence of God. Many of you in Artisan were heartbroken this week to hear about the exclusion of First Covenant in Minneapolis from the fellowship of the Evangelical Covenant Church because their pastor performed an unofficial gay wedding. And they refuse to repent of doing the right thing. It's a very complicated process in terms of church politics, but I think for Artisan and for First Covenant and for others, it's a very uncomplicated question. 
And it's not uncomplicated because we just want to be cool and hip and the church with the rainbow flag in front. It's uncomplicated because we're listening to the song that is in scripture, that is in science, that is in our bodies, that is in ourselves, and that is welling forth within us, saying, God is bigger. Let there be light. It is good. And we think that that should be more. Even though it's really heartbreaking that 77% voted against First Covenant, 23% voted for it, which is 23% more than maybe would have voted 50 years ago. It's not to try to sugarcoat a really painful and horrific and disorienting situation, but to me what is hopeful, what is powerful, what is going to prevail is the fact that 22% said no. We do believe in a bigger gospel. What is encouraging is that people continue to show up here, people who, especially LGBTQIA plus folks, who refuse to be refused, who say, fine, you won't have us in your denomination, we're still going to follow Jesus. We're still going to proclaim the gospel because it was for freedom Christ set us free. Artisan has already dug the foundations of this freedom, right? This week, you cleared out the, the classrooms, and you're going to be putting in um, inclusive bathrooms and inclusive facilities. You are drawing that line, and you are not going to cross back across it. That is a sign of hope. It is a long struggle. It is a long battle, because we love our entrenched categories. The church will always, err on, will always fail majorly because it's made mostly of humans. But the gospel does not fail. And the word of God throughout history, time, and music is unchanging. And that word of God is, let there be light. This is good. And let there be more. There's only one voice that defines who we are. And it happens to be the voice that John Coltrane brought to life in his saxophone. It's the voice that Paul was trying to bring to life with the Galatians. It is the voice I hope you hear every time you come into this space. And it is the voice the world desperately needs to hear from you that it is good, that God is love, and that love destroys the barriers human make to dehumanize one another. It's not an opinion. It's not a, it's not a decision that we have to make. They decided not to follow the clear teaching of Scripture. And even though we cannot throw stones and even though it does not help to, as the disciples wanted to do today in the gospel lesson we didn't read, cast down fire on the people who weren't listening to Jesus, um, Jesus rebukes the disciples for wanting to cast down fire and for wanting to hate the haters. Instead, God, God calls us not to cast down fire, but to call forth light, to draw forth these songs and these truths and these experiences and these stories which show how much bigger the gospel is. There's only one voice that defines who we are, and only one voice that gets to tell us who and what we are. And that is the voice that is also woven into every cell in creation. So when we doubt because of the voices of human beings and the songs that they try to sing about what God is like, we can know from experience, from scripture, from community, what the song of God is actually saying in the world. And the song of God is saying, you are my beloved. Nothing and no one else gets to tell you who you are except me. And my voice is love. And my song says, let there be light in you. And my song says, you are good. And my song says, I want more of you in the world. 
And I want you to be my song that draws other people into this communion so that others can also know the truth that has been denied to them, the truth that is in their very selves, reaching up to speak into the world. That's the song that God is trying to compose through us. It might come out in all sorts of different ways. Again, we might not all be songwriters. We're not all John Coltrane. We're not all Mike Muscarella. (laughs) Um, But we are, each of us, an instrument through which God is trying to play this psalm. And God is trying to um, remake the world through us. The The real artists and psalms in this series are each of you who is willing to let this song sing freely through you, even when there are other songs that are trying to tell something different with the confidence of children of God who in the gospel and by the grace of Jesus Christ are called good. And through the revelation of Christ, know that every other thing in creation is also good. And are sent out into the world not to convert people to an ideology, but to embrace more people into a family in which all voices really can be heard and new psalms can be sung and we can finally get beyond these barriers of the flesh and these divisions and we can start to create with the freedom that God intended for us to make beautiful things, to make things that inspire awe, to make communities and actions and works of art and pieces of music that make other people want to sing too. And so if in this time in our history we're not going to be joined by as many people as we thought, we'll still persist. We'll still continue to journey forward, not in bitterness, but in the hope that, hey, there are people journeying. And there will be more and more because that song is written into every single human being's soul. And in the heart of every human being is the Spirit saying, let there be light, it is good, and let there be more. And it is in the name of this Jesus who justifies us not by our works or by anything about us that we have decided, but only by God's decision to call us love that I offer this message. Amen. As we come to the communion table this day and as we prepare to um, embody this inclusiveness that God has given us, know that the table is not our table. It's not the table of Artisan or the South Wedge Mission or the ECC or the ELCA. It's Jesus' table. And Jesus invites all who feel that calling of the Spirit in our hearts, that song singing out, longing to be in communion with the one who loves us, to come. There are gluten-free elements, there's grape juice, so hopefully it does not exclude anyone. I invite you, if you hear that thing in your heart calling you forward, to come. And if you don't today, that's all right as well. Know that this table is a symbol of God's love, and it is for you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com 